So welcome to our class on uh, Egypt and Pesach. And I, there's not really going to be a specific structure to this class. It's more to just really kind of wet our feet with the with the feeling of, of Pesach. Because we have a couple of weeks. What is it? Three more weeks before Pesach? I believe it's it's about two and a half or three more weeks till Pesach. So I think it would be beneficial if we just start learning some of this information uh, to get ourselves prepared for for the for the holiday, you know. As uh, so, I just want to say one quick thing about coronavirus, and that is that if there's one thing that we're noticing from coronavirus, it's that you know man plans and God laughs. It's that we we have all these plans. Every human on the planet had a vision of what their year was maybe going to look like. Had some kind of plan about maybe business deals or what their daily life was going to be like, and you know, safe to say that all of our lives have been really overturned by this this virus that's completely out of our control. And just just you know, studying this stuff and and preparing for this class, the thing that really jumps out at me is that one of the lessons of Yetziat Mitzrayim, and I think maybe the most important lesson, is realizing how little we control. There's so much in life that's that's beyond us. You know, there's uh, there's there's all these these forces of nature that we have to contend with, and you know, usually we're not so aware of them because we live in a city, we're in our homes, we're sheltered. But then something like this, a virus that's part of nature, just comes about and storms the world. So I think the first thing is that it's it's very humbling. It's very humbling to realize that we don't control so many things about our lives. And as scary as that seems right now, you know, we, we all care about our loved ones, about the elderly, about our grandparents, if we're lucky enough to still have them, and our parents. You know, there's something really, really humbling about this experience. And for me personally, I've been trying to take it in that way, uh, you know, and as, as, uh, as much anxiety as I've been feeling, in addition to what's going on. I, I also have been studying a lot of, you know, like listening to a lot of audiobooks regarding spiritual growth. And I, I recently just finished, actually today, uh, the audiobook version of, and I highly recommend this to everybody. I think that especially at this time, if you have free time to listen to it or read it, it's called The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. And in this book, you know, he talks about, first of all, realizing that you know that that voice in your head that that mind those words that are constantly going on imagine you know imagine you could take that mind that's in your brain and and see seat it next to you put it next to you as an individual person who's just speaking constantly you know and you could imagine how how wild this would drive you after about 10 seconds it's like it's like being in a movie theater and having somebody who's constantly talking and doesn't shut up the entire time that's what our minds are like so I think the first step towards spiritual growth is the realization that we are not our minds. We're not that voice that's constantly going on in our brains. Rather, we are the one who notices. We're the one who hears it. So just as a, as a source of relaxing your anxiety and, and calming down and not being so constantly worried, I think it's very reassuring just to take a step back and realize all these worries, all these things going on in your head. Take a, a second to realize that's not me. That's just what's going on in my brain. And I, I, once you make that separation, it's the first step towards meditation or towards really letting your mind at ease. So I thought I would begin with that. And I think the lesson of Yetziat Mitzrayim, and I'm, hopefully we'll, over the next couple of weeks, we'll start today. We're going to realize that there's something so fundamental about this lesson that God wants to teach us about the world. He's trying to teach us something. He's saying... That there are things in the world that you cannot control. There are things beyond your control. And if there's one lesson that Paro Melech Mitzrayim needed to learn desperately, it's this idea. That there are things that he cannot control. And that he needs to be more humble. You know, as, as powerful as he is, he's the, the, the king of the greatest empire of the ancient world. There's so many things that he could not have dominion over. So as we read through the text, we're going to try to notice different things like that. But before we really jump into the story, starting here where you see on your screens, chapter 3, the first thing I want to do is I want to, I think this is not something we, we, we discuss enough. I want to overwhelm you 
with an amazed, you know, an amazed feeling about what the text is. I think, you know, a lot of us, we read the Torah, we say, you know, it's a nice story. It's very profound. There's a lot of beautiful literary devices. The question I often get from people, or maybe not so often, is, Mike, how do you know this is divine? How do you know that this is of another level? It's of another order compared to other works like maybe Dante and Shakespeare. How do you know the Torah is different? And, you know, for many years, I didn't really have an answer. I just thought this is something that's guiding our people. It's something that's holding us together. It's something that has really profound ideas that have shaped society. That was really the best I could do. When I started learning with Ronnie Benin and Rabbi Shama, I really began to get a grasp on what it means that the Torah is of a different order. That there are things in the Torah and aspects of its literary devices that are so profound and so deep that I don't think that any human on his own could have just done this by himself. And what you're going to be seeing on your screen now is my attempt at one small aspect of what this could mean. It's something that really inspires me till this very day. It's actually in Rabbi Shama's book. And it is in, it's from the work of Ronnie Benin and uh, their teacher, Rabbi Solomon D. Sassoon. So this excerpt of text that you're seeing right here is from the beginning of Parashat Va'era. It's really directly in the, in the center of the, the Exodus story, right? We know it starts, Shemot Va'era Bo Beshalah. So right in the beginning of Va'era, right after Moshe receives uh, kind of bad news from Paro that Paro is not going to let the people go and that he's going to make the, uh, the, 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 their legislation even more severe against the people. You know, Moshe is completely, he's really not happy. He's not happy with God. He says, God, why did you even send me? Why did you send me just to make this a more severe plague for the people? And God responds with the following. And I think this is probably for me, if you want to know about the basis of my belief that the Torah is really of another order, this is one of those things. It's not the only thing, because I don't think it's healthy to have one specific pillar upon which all of your beliefs about the divine and about the Torah are lying and are relying. But I think this is one thing that really inspires me. So I, I want to hear from you guys if you agree with me or not about the level of, of, of how inspiring this is. And you let me know. So, does anybody know what a chiasm is? So, a chiasm is basically, it's a structure, it's a literary device used by the Torah that is trying to get you focused on the center point. And it has a structure of ABC, CBA, where everything that is uh, at, at each end of it is paralleling each other. And then as you move towards the center, you continue to see more parallels. So this is one example of a, of a chiasm in the Torah. And there's so many things involved here that I think it's so complex that, that this is why it's so inspiring to me. So you read it, you look, okay, what's part A? So God is saying, Moshe, I need you to understand something. And it starts off as Elohim, right? It's different names of God being used here. And then it transitions to being Yod Kevavke. So it goes from being Elohim, which we know as the God of the entire world, right? The God of the ancient world as well. Everyone believed in Elohim. Elohim even is a plural word because it means gods, you know. But the Torah kind of adopts the word and says, you know, those gods that everyone believes in, the gods that everyone thinks is controlling the world, that's really Yodkei Vavke. That's one and the same as the God of Israel. So God is saying to Moshe, Ani Hashem, I am God. And he says, I appeared to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov with the name El Shaddai. I had a different name, which is kind of a way of saying, I never really appeared to them. They didn't see the full extent of my name. Now let me ask you a question. What is the name Yodkevavke mean to you? Anybody have any idea about what the, the name Yodkevavke might mean? Yeah, uh, I think it has to do with something to do with time, something about being timeless. Beautiful. I, I think that's exactly it, right? You look at the word Haya, Hove, and Yihyeh. You put them together, and they become this compound word of Yodkevavke. 
So it's was, is, and will be. It's, it's kind of like the idea of existence itself. That's kind of the way you could put it. The, the force of being. And, and, you know, I would go so far as to say that this force of being is something that lies at the center of all of us. I'm not saying we are God, but I'm saying we all have, are able to tap into, on some deeper level, whatever God is. So God is saying, I didn't reveal to them this name of Yodkevavke. And I think the Torah, I think somebody maybe is having interference with their phone, I'm not sure, or their computer. Um, so this, this name Yodkevavke is supposed to be... Oh, thank you very much, Rabbi. I appreciate it. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> so, so Yodkevavke is supposed to mean something different than all the other names of God that were understood by previous generations as well as other Goyim, other nations. So it's, interestingly enough, let's skip to the, the end portion of this paragraph. And what do we see? Just like the beginning, part A was Ani Hashem, so too the end is Ani Hashem. Right? You continue and you say, okay, what's part B? Part B is talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. And you look at part B from the end. It's also talking about uh, talking about the land that's supposed to be given to Abraham, Isaac, Yaakov. And sure enough, the entire thing is like that, right? Right? God talks about the berit here, and then you go over here, and it's it's also about taking everyone to the adits. That's the point of this of part C. You continue forward. God is hearing the cries of the people. That's part D. You look over here. God is hearing the cries of the people. And finally, directly in the center of all of this is Ani Hashem. So you you noticed already that we have four Ani Hashems here. You have right here, right here, and right here. So if you start counting from the the first words of God, right? Ani Hashem are the first words of God. And you say, okay, let me count from there until the end. It's exactly 52 words. Or sorry, it's actually 54 words. But you're going to see, if you count from each Ani Hashem till the next one, there's 26 words in between, right? Sorry, from this one to this one, it's 26. From this one to this one is 26. From this one to this one is 26. Or I'm sorry, maybe this, there's uh, 52 uh, in, involved somewhere there. I think it's from the, the, the first one to the third one. And then there's another 26. Somehow there's, there's an amazing structure here going on between each Yodke Vavke. And of course we know the point of that is the name Yodke Vavke in, in Gematria, in numerical value is 26. Now let me just give you a very quick one or two sentences about gematria, just so you don't think I'm crazy. I don't think gematria is something we could all make up. I don't think it's something that we could all, you know, just uh, create out of the the uh, out of the blue, just from the the uh, the the wind of our imagination. I don't think that's what uh, gematria is supposed to be. I think gematria really is supposed to be something that is. In the text, it's supposed to be reflective of the content. So here, what are we noticing? Let's let's skip down for a second. What is 26? 26 is not only the gematria, the value of God's name, it's also the generation of Moshe Rabbeinu. Right? Moshe Rabbeinu is the 26th generation from creation. Adam to Noah is 10. Noah to Abraham is 10. And then Abraham to uh, Moshe is another 6. Right? So it's exactly 26 generations. So God is trying to say something here, that he's revealing his name like has never been revealed before. And everything about this passage is screaming to us 26. So you look and you say, each, from each Yudkevavke to the next one is 26 words. And the entire thing is 52 words if you count uh, from beginning to end. And the first words of it is Ani Hashem. The last word is Ani Hashem. The center words are Ani Hashem. And if you look at all the words of God, the center of that is also Ani Hashem. So God is trying to, in grand style, reveal His name. And He's trying to redefine what it means for God to be involved in the world. Right? There's something new going on. There's, there's going to be a, a new way of, of understanding what the divine is, based on this encounter with God. So here's the part that I think, you know, if that seems a little bit technical, I apologize. But this part coming up, I think, is really what blows me away. Oh, you could also look here just uh, quickly. The first stanza of Az Yashir, of the song, right, that, that Ben Israel are going to sing when they get out of Egypt. 
beginning with its first word, Ashira, in, excluding the 11th, uh, 11 third person ex- in- introductory words of superscription and concluding with verse 11 contains 102 words and subdivides into two parts of 50 and 52 words respectively the same thing that's going on here right so sorry we had 50 words leading up to Ani Hashem and 52 words leading up to Ani Hashem so and, and at intervals of 26 the point being that everything is about that same thing same thing going on here in Az Yashir right so Exactly the same thing going on in the beginning of the story and the end of the story, right? The beginning of the Exodus process began with this par- this whole paragraph we were reading up here. And the end of the Exodus process ends with the story of Az Yashir. And the same exact literary devices are present in both, right? So the first strophe of that first stanza, concluding with Yodke Vavke is his name, right? Hashem Shemo. It appropriately comprises 26 words. So Yodke Vavke Shemo as the 25th and 26th words. So it's a way of put, kind of putting the cherry on top of the cake and saying, hey, look at this. Again, we're, we're playing off of this concept of 26. So that might have seemed a little technical, but now this is the stuff really that I think is indisputably unbelievable and to me is just shows me that the Torah is of another order compared to other works that are written by men. So as we mentioned, Moshe Rabbeinu, is the 26th generation from creation. How about this? We know that in the Torah, the number 8 and the number 80, right, and all the multiples of 8, are symbolic of the covenant. You know, if you've ever heard classes from Rabbi Shama or myself, you know, trying to discuss this concept, of course, we have Berit Milah, the the, uh, the covenant that uh, between God and Abraham, of course, it's supposed to be done on the 8th day. The word Berit appears eight times in the story of Noah. There's eight people on the Teva. The, the Noah story also has 800 words till the apex, 800 words till the end. Everything throughout the Torah, throughout the Nevi'im, the number eight signifies Berit, the covenant. So God talking about the covenant here, the, if you look at the, that phrase, Ani Hashem, I am God, it appears exactly 80 times in the entire Torah. Okay, doesn't seem like a coincidence. It seems like this is intentional. Because it's trying to tell you, this is what the Berit means. It means to understand what Ani Hashem is. How about this? You look in Leviticus 19 alone, it's a, it's a small mini law code that we have in the, in the center of Vayikra. There's 16 times that it says Ani Hashem. Of those 16 times, 8 times are Ani Hashem Elokechem, and 8 times are just Ani Hashem. Okay. Now this is really, to me, the most amazing stat. If you count from the first Ani Hashem, right? So God over here in our story, what is he saying? He's saying to Moshe, I am God. I have never revealed this name before to humanity. Ani Hashem, I'm God. If you take that Yodke Vavke right here and you count from that Yodke Vavke, you count up every single Yodke Vavke till the end of Nevi'im Rishonim, which means you finish all the Nevi'im, right? There's exactly 2,600 occurrences of Yodke Vavke. This is counted by Ronnie Bennett. He has a special program used also by the, by the Bari Lan University to count with the most perfect uh, versions of the Torah and the Nevi'im that we have. And you get exactly 2,600 occurrences on the dot of God's name. To me, and this is not something that has been talked about ever till like this century. Nobody's discovered this. Nobody's talked about this. To me, this is saying, you know, you put the Torah to the test. You say, are there important patterns going on? Are there things that cannot be explained simply by chance? I don't think there's a chance in hell that this would just happen to be 2600 unless it was purposely done like that by the Nevi'im and by God. You continue on. Here's a, this is almost a humorous one, right? So you said, okay, the first Ani Hashem that God is ever revealing to humanity till the end of Nevi'im, 2600. I got that. Well, the next Pasuk was saying, and you know what, Moshe, I want you to know, I never revealed my name, Yodke Vavke, to anybody else. Not even to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And that is a hint to the reader. It's telling the reader, you know what? Ushmi Hashem lono dati lahem. I didn't reveal to them, but you know what? If you dig far enough... It'll be revealed to you, again in grand style, from this Yod Kevavke. So this Yod Kevavke had the 2600 
till the end of Nevi'im Yishonim. This Yod Kevavke, how about it? Let's see. From Ushmi Hashem Lono Dati Lahem, right? I did not reveal my name. Spanning till the end of the five books of the Torah, right? You finish Devarim, the last word of Devarim, Le'ene Kol Yisrael. You count up all the names of Yod Kevavke from our story till the end of Devarim. There's exactly 1,352 occurrences. Now, what number is, what does that mean? 1,352 is 26 times its double, times 52. So, these are highly significant numbers. They're ways of God, and this is a literary device being used. It's not some magical thing. It's not voodoo. It's not heebie-jeebie. It's an actual literary device trying to impress upon you as the reader the significance of what's about to happen. And that is that the world as we know it will completely relate to existence and to God differently. And it's expressing through numbers that concept. Right? So 26 times 52. And now the, the rest of these stats, I don't want to go through every single one in detail because I want to get to the story a little bit. But every one of the rest of these stats is to try to show you something. It's to try to show you that no matter which way you cut it, if you go to this passage and you start counting any of these Yod Kevavkes till any places in the, in the rest of the Tanakh, there's going to be something signifying the number 26, no matter which way you cut it. So for example, you count the total number of verses in the Torah from beginning to end, which have Yod Kevavke without prefixes, 26 times, times 51. And then you do the same thing without prefixes, but this time till the end of the former prophets. That's 26 times 90. And then you count from all the Yod Kevavkes from Ushmi Hashem till the end of the five books of the Torah, 26 times 45. And then the same thing till the end of Nevi'im, 26 times 84. And then each one of these is just to try to impress upon you the significance of this passage, the, the significance of what's going on over here, which is that there's, there's a complete shift in the understanding of the divine. And that's what these literary devices are supposed to show you as the reader. So I'd like to continue now uh, from, from this point, from this, uh, I think, you know, so I want to hear feedback from you guys before we jump into the story. Are you convinced that this stuff is just of another order, that it can't be by chance? So let me ask you by name. Dr. Nasser, what do you think? <laughs> so uh, being a scientist, um, you know, I think it's very interesting, but uh, no, I wouldn't be convinced because... You know, whenever you take statistics and apply it to something where you're looking for a certain answer and you don't have a control, um, you know, it, it could be misleading. I hear that. I really do. My question is, though, the fact that it's exactly like we're showing everything is about 26. And then you look till the end of the Torah and everything is 26 going on, no matter which way you cut it. I, I personally think that something should have come out. I'm not, uh, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, I'm not debating yes. it, and uh, I don't use this for my belief either, yes. like you. Exactly. But uh, I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> I need to see behind what other uh, combinations the person came up with. Maybe maybe he tested a million things, and, the, and these are the only ones that added up, and then we didn't see the, uh, the research that was thrown out. That didn't make the cut. That, yes. that argued that for the, the that Satan really wrote the Bible. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe. You know what I mean? Like. Yes, I hear what you're saying. So I'll tell you what you got to do. When when Ronnie Bennon's book comes out, you have to be the first guy to buy it. That's what that means. When Ronnie Bennon, who did all this work, you have to buy his book and realize that there's a lot of patterns going on. I agree with you. I. I'm the first guy to say, God forbid, that this should be the the basis of anybody's faith. I think it's no more than a literary device, but it's something that shows me. I discovery in Israel. I don't know if you ever went to that. I was 18, so we're talking a long time ago. Hey. And, yeah. and I thought they did a good job. Uh, that I thought was convincing because, you know, they compared the same algorithm to different literature. Uh, so they, they, whatever the algorithm was, they, you know, they run these codes across, upside down, backwards, forward, and they use Encyclopedia Judaica to pick... Uh, I don't want to get off topic here. Yes. They picked, let's say, the, the 50 most uh, popular Jewish terms in Encyclopedia Judaica based on the amount of pages. And, you know, it would be like famous Jewish figures, holidays, you know, you know what I'm talking about, proper nouns. And uh, they found them in the Torah at a much higher degree than would be predicted by chance. And then they tried the same 
you know, uh, algorithm on the works of William Shakespeare, on the New Testament, on the Quran, yeah. and nothing. And, Good, so... Uh, so, to me, like, that's at least, you know, a little bit more scientific. I can get behind it. Yeah. Uh, but, I don't you know, think this is supposed to be – yeah, I definitely don't want this to be, like, a, a thing you have to plug into a computer in that way and, like, have an algorithm. I think this is nothing more than counting the names of God. That's why I think it's a little bit simpler than that, and that's why, for me, it's more compelling. But, you know what, we'll definitely continue that discussion another time. But I think this is – even from just a poetic point of view – I think it's overwhelming the extent to which God is revealing his name in grand style, but I definitely want to continue that conversation with you. The next thing that I want... Sorry. Yes. What would be very interesting... Am I, am I on here? Yes. Hi, this is Zeke Abraham. Hi, Zeke. How are you? Okay, good, good, good. So I think what would be really, really um, interesting here is to understand what the possible other significances of the number... 26 or even what if it did prove to whoever believes it what it proves to them good i think right what does that mean to somebody who is a believer in whatever all this is yes so i think it's it's really nothing more than the following i think it's trying to say whenever the torah does this it's it's that the structure or the literary device reflects the content so the content here is god is saying i'm revealing my name like it's never been revealed before and the structure of it and the, the, the poetry of it is to try to tell you the same thing. That he's revealing his name like it's never been revealed before. And it's to try to show you, let me show you through these patterns that I'm revealing my name and the name has never been revealed. So, so that's the extent of which people invest in, uh, in, in Barilan type programs to figure out that, that this is just what you just said i think i'll tell you what i think i don't think you could do this with shakespeare i don't think you could do this with dante no, what i'm saying is what i'm saying is what is the ultimate what is the i don't want to use the term holy grail but what is the discovery right that you that one can make using these algorithms yes so i don't i that like i said i don't think you could prove ever that the torah is divine i don't think that's something you could prove scientifically because it's just impossible to prove that but I think that you could show that this is of a different order than other literature. And I think that's the value of it. Because if it was just like Shakespeare, if it was just like Dante, you wouldn't be able to do this. You wouldn't be able to say, let me look exactly where God reveals his name. And then look till the end of all the Nevi'im and it's 2600. Or look till the end of the Torah and it's 26 times 52. I don't think you would be able to do that with any other work of literature. Certainly not. Certainly so, not. so for me, that's the significance. I'm not saying that proves – that's not why I, I'm a moral person. I'm a moral person because I think God, you know, of course, is, is, is speaking to me in different ways through my conscience, through the Torah's moral, moral message. But I think that these elements of the Torah are adding something, and they add something really important and interesting. So, so I think – say it again. Isaac's side. How are you? Hi, Isaac. Quick question. Sure. Um. It doesn't sound like this could have been found before the age of computers or even before the 1980s when when we perfected the uh, the, the uh, digital uh, version of the Bible. I was there when Ronnie Bennett, uh, when Rabbi Ralphie Powell and I yes. finished the, edit, the editing of the two different versions and then kept, and had, and Ronnie had a, had a program that ran it. And it counted, actually. Rabbi Sassoon had predicted there'd be uh, something like 79,982. 82? Was it 82? 82. Something like that. 20 missing words in the Bible. So there should have been 80,000. Yes. And we knew which ones would be the missing ones. And, um, and it came out that way. So before a computer... We weren't able to count accurately, although our our scribes are called counters. Yes, Sofrim. Um, they use the abacus. They, they use the abacus. Were they able to do this and see the patterns before that? So, um, so I I agree that, with that you. I think would make it that, that I think would would make it even um, better because it's in there, even though you couldn't see it before. It's just there. Yeah, I think I agree with you 100%. I think that's that's really part of it is that this was not discovered till now. The fact that you nobody had the patience or the ability to count every Yodke Vavke from this point till the end of Nevi'im Yishonim. It just wasn't practical. What is now? 
now, now, and we're talking, you said that it was something about time before somebody chimed in before. Yes. But time doesn't exist, really. So if we're looking at it that way and we're saying to Hashem, time does not exist, then it was always intended to be seen because time, we're all, we're all on that same track, right? So, so when it comes to time, yeah, I agree. I think God wants people to discover this. And I think this is something that was lost. It was a tradition that was held. And over the years, I, don't, I think people forgot it. And it, it took rediscovery. Or maybe the, the, somebody at, at an earlier point in time was able to look forward and have that understanding, like sort of like a quantum leap. I mean, it's very interesting. I, I don't know enough about uh, the, the, the physics of, uh, of time to really comment on that. So, but I think that this is a good place to stop the with thing, this. The, uh, the, the, other, the other thing I want to point yes. out here is that um, and there was a doctor on, on the call. I don't, I don't remember what his name was. Dr. Nasser. Dr. Nasser. <laughs> Dr. Nasser said, you know, what do you have to compare it to? To see, like, 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 almost a um, uh, uh, what do they call them when they do these tests? So like a blind control, blind, a yeah. control, a, a, a litmus test. <laughs> no, a control, a control, a control, uh, a control. So, uh, can we go into, let's say, the Old Testament, uh, the New Testament, and the Quran? Let's say, just, just take two, and then take Shakespeare's The Third, or any Eastern. Um, uh, base, uh, you know, uh, re- re- religious texts, and see if they, we can find similar patterns or Perfect. things happening there. They don't. Uh, we, you'd have to really have somebody committed to studying these things. Yeah. And see if they can come up with come up with anything computer based. I believe we'd be able to do that in about maybe 10, 20, 30 years when AI takes over. And, you know, I mean, and just become smarter than us. Yes, I agree 100%. I want to, I want to. And then they can see if there are patterns there. For sure. Why not feed the data straight into the same database that they're using now? For sure. You know what? So, so let's, I think we're going to, let's pause the the, the conversation about this for now. Just because I don't want to get into this rabbit hole right now. But I agree with everything everyone's saying. But yes, we, we, we will find somebody that will count all the, the Allahs in, uh, in the Quran and we'll see if that's a good control. But so now, just, to, to, because, just for the sake of time, I wish we could really dis- continue to discuss this. For the sake of time, let's continue by just looking at this chart. I think this is an amazing thing as well. We all hear and we know that God is telling us all the time that he's He's trying to mock and make fun of the gods of the Egyptians. So I found this very interesting chart online that really shows this. And I want to hear again what you guys think about this. This is more content-based than just numbers. So I think this is a lot lot more engaging for those who kind of got lost in that last thing. So we know that uh, the Makkah of Dam, right? The Makkah, the blood, right? The Egyptians, of course, we know that they worshipped the Nile as the god, as uh, and Osiris had the Nile as his bloodstream. Hapi was the spirit of the Nile. Khnum was the guardian of the river's source. So, of course, this is a very obvious one and a clear one, um, mocking the god of the Nile. Uh, the second thing that you could notice here with, with the Makat Sefardea, with the frogs, this is something that not many people know is that the Egyptians had a god named Hecht. Hecht was the god of fertility. And what did we just finish reading? If you're reading through Sefer Shemot, and you get to all the story of the, of the plagues, what was Paro's decree against the baby boys? His decree was, let's throw them into the river. Right, throw them into the Nile. So what's going on here through these, these things is that God is completely turning that on its head. He's saying, you used your God of the Nile in order to get rid of the fertility of my people. Right? Pen Yirbe, you had said. Ken Yirbe, says God. That's the first thing. Plus, I'm going to turn your Nile into blood. Right? And what is that shine? Turning the Nile into blood is like saying to the people, I know what you did. I know what's in that Nile. There's dead bodies of baby boys in there. You cannot cover up your sin. You cannot hide from the crime that you've committed. And then the second thing 
is I think uh, I think I heard this from uh, one of the Tanakh study teachers, is that the 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 Egyptian midwives had amulets of frogs that they would wear or something like that. Uh, forgive me for not knowing the exact uh, practice, but they would wear these amulets in order to you know promote fertility. So now for God to bring a plague of frogs is like showing me da keneged me da. You try to cease the fertility of the Jewish people, I'm going to throw that in your face. I'm going to throw your God back in your face and show you, you did not succeed in in, in, in quashing these people of Israel. Um, yes. Michael, is interestingly, because you're saying that the frog is like a symbol of fertility, if you look at a tadpole, it kind of looks like, um, like human... Um, Yes. Yes, know, for sure. Joking, but, I mean it seriously, but I, I think maybe uh, it could be related to that. If if that was a real practice that they that they did. Yeah, but they didn't invent the microscope for a while. Yeah, they, I don't think they really knew. They didn't really well, know what it looked like. People did uh, make things with glass and focus light. Uh, nah. Uh, yeah, I, I I would have to see some kind of evidence of that, but it's a very interesting thought. I think that you know maybe the archetype of what an embryo looks like could be. I don't know. No, it's a, it's a very interesting thought. Just to continue forward now with the lice, what do we see? That they had a god of the earth. Continue on, the god of the flies. Every single one of these makot, not only is it bringing the Egyptians to their knees, you know, the first three, you look at them, what's the structure of it? The first three have to do with stuff that's external to the Egyptians, right? It's the some of the most fundamental gods. It's the Nile, it's the frogs, and it's the lice. So you have the earth, so you have the water, you have the earth going on here, you continue forward, and then you have the flies and the cattle, that's again on land, and it continues forward to being in the sky. So it's a progression upwards from the waters to the land to the heavens. So it's saying we're getting closer and closer to completely defeating your entire pantheon of gods. So the flies, like we said, the, the, the dead cattle, we know that they, uh, they worshipped cows and bulls. The boils, now once it gets onto the Egyptians themselves, it's like the lice and the flies and the boils, that's a step forward. Again, each it's different types of progressions. So it's progressions, like we said, against their gods. It's progressions in terms of how it's affecting the Egyptians personally and directly. All right, and finally, it, it ends up... Uh, affecting the most significant part of their economy, which is their their crops and their and their livestock, and eventually the last thing is the the biggest uh, attack on their gods, which of course is the death of the firstborn, because just as God had warned, God had said to to tell uh, to Moshe to tell Paral that if you are going to hold my people hostage. He right, Beni Bechori Israel. Israel is my firstborn. Israel is the one who's going to carry on my legacy. That's what a firstborn does. When God says that Israel is my firstborn, that's what He means. So it's the same thing for the Egyptians. The the legacy of the Egyptians, everything they stand for, the people who would be worshiping and serving in the in the temple, were their firstborn. So for God to destroy them was a symbolic act showing this is the nail in the coffin. This is the final way of showing the defeat of the pantheon of gods. It's the final way of showing that you know they, they are completely null and void. Any belief that you might have had in these gods is completely for no reason because they have absolutely no power and no significance. All right, so that's just to give you an overview. So I think just for the last 20 minutes that we have here or so, I think it would be beneficial just to start reading through the story. Hopefully in future weeks we could uh, you know, get done as much as we can. And I, I hope this will, just by reading and familiarizing yourself with the text and seeing if we could gain some insights into what's going on, I think that would really enhance your Pesach. Despite not being with your entire family, you will, you will be able to meditate on these ideas and I think it really will enhance your Pesach. So let's start from, from uh, chapter 3 here. And we were talking about uh, some of the the uh, makot and their symbolism. Now I'd like to dedicate the next 20 minutes to asking the question of what is the symbolism of the signs that God's going to give Moshe? And hopefully we'll end with that. So let's start from here. Moshe was shepherding the the uh, flock of, of Yitro, his father-in-law. So that's very interesting. We're going to 
be hearing echoes here of something that's going to happen in the future, right? If you flash forward, we're going to see Moshe again shepherding an entire people in, a, in the exact same spot in Har Elohim, known as Horev, right? When he, when he gets to Har Sinai. So keep that in the back of your mind. The Torah is trying to connect you. It's trying to blur the lines between this first step of Moshe to the journey that's going to continue on later on for Moshe. Isn't that interesting? Where else do we see a pillar of fire coming down and consuming something, right? What does it say in Har Sinai? Right, what do we see here? The same thing about Ochelet, Ukal, same word, Esh Ochelet. Right? So from the center of the sine, right? Isn't that inter- an interesting word? Yeah. What, what does that sound like? Sinai. Sinai. Yeah. Right? It's sine is a mini Sinai. It's so a what? The trip that they take later. Yes, exactly. It's it, so this is a microcosm. This entire thing that's going on here between Moshe Rabbeinu and his flock of sheep. Right, is so symbolic and so telling and, and really foreshadowing the flock that Moshe is going to be taking care of very soon. And in that time it's going to be on Sinai and not at Sinai. Just a beautiful idea here. What do we keep seeing from Moshe? We see we see this word Vayera, Vayar, Vayar, everything Vayar. Earlier on in the story also, the, the point of the Torah is, is a leader is the person who sees. He's the person who notices. And what do we see Moshe say? Would not be consumed. Right? And I was actually talking to, to Michael Tabelli, right? We were talking about this. But what does this mean? That there's this sine, that's the, this this bush that's not being consumed, right? Mike, what do you think it means? I think that uh, it represents his strength. Um, uh, I think that he might have thought he was not going to go back to his people and he was going to like give up that life and that mission that he might have had, you know, from God. And and I think that the flame kind of represents, and like the bush not being consumed, represents his strength too. Beautiful. Um, That's on a personal level. So I would take it not only personally, I would take it also on a national level. Saying no matter how much we're being consumed, you know, how, how, how much we're burning, we'll, we will never be fully consumed. We're never going to be completely disintegrated by the fire, no matter what that fire is that's going on. And because, you know what, that fire also has a double meaning. The fire that's burning us is really also symbolic of God's presence within us. I think that's something, just food for thought, you could tell me if you have a different interpretation of what the ash and the sine might mean. Because we continually see God's presence being signified by a fire. So as severe as things might seem, there really is the presence of God involved because it's the destiny of the people of Israel. He says, let me go and see what's going on. This tremendous thing that's going on. Why is the bush not being not burning? Right? So now look at these are very important words. The thing that God notices is that Moshe noticed. So again, the most important thing that God wants from a leader is a person who notices, the person who is seeing. This is a problem. There are people who are suffering. There's a, a burning bush. The, the children of Israel are burning. And I need to go and help them. And you know what? Like Moshe, they're going to be people with reservations. They're going to be people that don't think that they have what it takes to step up. But at the end of the day, they're going to do what needs to be done because there's fires to put out. Right? So God calls them from the midst of the sine. It's interesting, right? We see We're also going to see or something to that effect in Har Sinai. Right? We're going to see God calling to Moshe from the midst of another fiery, fiery cloud. Same exact words. God says, don't step any closer. Right? There's there's a uh, separation of holiness going on here, just as there was for Har Sinai. Because the land upon which you're standing is holy ground. 
Vayomer, Anochi Elohe Avicha. Right, what does that sound like? Anochi Adonai Elohecha Ashiro Sedicha Meretz Mitzrayim Ebed Abadim. Right, that's, this is the, the first commandment being echoed here. Right? But this time it's it's in a you know it's less of a personal thing. It's going to continue on later on as a very personal experience between us and God. Elohecha, this is Elohe Avicha, Elohe Abraham, Elohe Yitzchak, Elohe Yaakov. Vayaster Moshe panav ki yare mehabit Elohim. And Moshe turns his face away because he's afraid of of glancing at God, which is ironic, right? Because what happens later on on this mountain? What is Moshe going to do? He's going to look at God. Who knows what I'm talking about? When does Moshe look at God? We no, his, uh, his back. Very good. Perfect. And he's going to be the only person, right? It's going to be, Moshe is going to speak to God, Panim el Panim. Right? Like a person speaking to his friend. So it's ironic here. It's saying, The person who's running away from these kinds of glorious experiences, the person who's humble is the person that, that's going to be followed by these experiences. Right? Vayomer. Vayomer Adonai. And so, one more thing before we, we discuss the next Pasuk. I heard a beautiful Midrash about this. And that is that if Moshe would have looked at God in a sense, he would have seen things from God's perspective. And maybe he wouldn't have acted. He would have lost his, his human idea of justice based on the divine perspective. So it took a leader that says, you know what? In Judaism, this is, this is what we value. We don't value the guy who's going to say this is the will of God. We don't believe in that. When somebody's suffering, God doesn't ask us to say this is the will of God. You know, don't just accept it. According to Rabbi Sachs, it's the idea of faith as protest. The person who is challenging the status quo, that's the great Jewish leader. Right? He's afraid to just see things from the perspective of God. Because he knows that God gave us human justice to try to exercise that on our own. God says, I noticed and I saw what's going on for the people. I see all that they're suffering. And so on and so forth. So God is, is giving forth to Moshe. This is what I want. I want to take the people out of Egypt. And I've noticed the suffering that the Egyptians are causing them. I'm going to send you to Paro. Right? Just like it says, Being echoed here, Now, what's the next thing that Moshe says? He's extremely humble. Right? And that word, Anochi, just keeps on repeating itself. Who am I? And now, what's the second commandment of the Ten Commandments? What do we see here? I'm going to be with you. Right? That word. It's in order. Each one of the Ten Commandments is being paralleled here by what's going on here for Moshe. Now I'm going to give you the sign that I'm sending you. And here's the sign that I'm sending you. That when you get out of Egypt, you're going to worship me on this mountain. Well, a question for you. Is this a very good sign? If you're Moshe, and you have to convince all these people that you're sent by God, well, in retrospect, you're going to be able to prove it. But what about right now? It's a pretty lousy sign, right? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't really sound like something that uh, is going to convince anybody. Only in retrospect, but that's exactly the point. Back the burning bush with him. Yeah, exactly. But he's so so Moshe is gonna get his signs, like we know, which we'll close off with. But the point is, this is a personal sign. This is This is the sign for Moshe on a personal level that you're seeing the microcosm that's going on right now with you is going to become the macrocosm of the experience on Sinai. Your Sinai experience is gonna be doubled, and it's gonna become a Sinai experience. And that's for later on for you personally to notice that Moshe. Right? 
They're going to ask me, what's his name? What do I tell them? Well, does that sound familiar to you? What's the third commandment of the Ten Commandments? Don't take the name of God in vain. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. What is the name of God? And it's so beautiful what God says. And this gets back to our discussion of Yod Kevavke. Yod Kevavke is all about existence. So that's the way we speak about him. From the third person, we're saying, That's how you, how you speak about somebody else. But somebody talking about themselves will just say, I am that I am. I am being itself. So this is your new understanding of God. All the other nations, all the other previous generations understood God as Elohim. They understood God simply as nature. Now we're going to see a view of God, not only as nature, but a God who is involved. And it's involved, yes, through nature, but through people, through the acts of, of ambitious people, but also through the acts of overwhelming nature at the perfect timing. You know, even if you want to say that the plagues happened in a way that was through nature, it doesn't contradict the fact that the timing of it and the magnitude of it and the way that it worked out for B'nai Israel was nothing short of, of miraculous. So, he changes it just to Ehyeh. And of course we know Rashi says that maybe Ehyeh implies I'm going to be with you in this suffering just like I'm going to be with you in all the future sufferings. And then it's like, you know what? Don't tell them about the future sufferings. They can only handle this one right now. Take it one at a time. Just tell them Ehyeh. And then again, He says a different thing now. He says, You know what? This is the thing I want you to tell them. And I think that the, the progression here is purposeful. Trying to tell you this is the way that you need to understand God. First of all, you should notice on a basic philosophical level, God is And then the idea of history, it's And then finally, just tell them That's how I'm going to be known. The name that they're going to relate to is the God of their forefathers. The God who cares about them intimately. The God who is involved in their destiny. Just like he was involved in the destiny of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And he says, Lech Yisrael. I want you to gather everybody. Tell them, Pakot And so on and so forth. And now, I want to skip quickly. Uh, just to, to, to mention, right, what's the fourth commandment? Zachor uh, Shabbat Shabbat is the ot that God created the world in six days. So too Moshe is getting all these otot. Kabet Davicha Mecha is the final of the, five, the first five, right, of the commandments. Um, and the point with that is, what is what's Moshe's next? One of his next excuses is going to be, Vayomer, right? He says, Ki peh lashon anochi, right? He says, I am, I'm, I'm not a, a speaker. I'm not able to, right? And he says, I'm heavy of tongue. What kind of a, of a language is that to use if not to try to parallel kabed davi mecha? So I think that's pretty clear right there that there's a progression of parallels to try to show Moshe what's going on. But So now we have four minutes left. I want to just discuss briefly uh, the the specific signs that Moshe re, uh, is, is receiving from God. Right? So first he says, they're not going to listen to me. And then God says, you know what? Okay. What do you have in your hand? Now, isn't that interesting? You know, you tell a leader, I want you to do all this stuff. I want you to take the people out of Egypt. And you tell him, he says, how am I going to do that? I have nothing. He says, what's in your hand? What you have in your hand right now, what you have in your potential right now, is all you need to gain salvation. So we think we're not fit, we're not good enough, we're not worthy of doing these great things. What you have in your hand already right now, is really all you need in order to bring salvation for yourself or for others, right? To be a leader. So first of all, what is a mate? Mate is like a scepter. It's like a, it's a staff. It's something that's symbolizing something of power. And beyond that, we know. I, I believe archaeologically that one of the signs of of the pharaohs was the snake, was the the cobra on the top of the of the scepter. So for Moshe to throw down the scepter and for it to become a snake is, is symbolic of Moshe. And then Moshe, what does he do? He grabs it by the tail. 
And now let me ask you a question. If you know anything about snakes, Michael Tabell, you know stuff about snakes. If you're going to grab a snake, where, where are you going to grab a snake from? What's a smart place to grab a snake if you, if you had to? From the tail. No, that's, not, that's <laughs> no. the wrong place. <laughs> it's going to bite you. You got to grab it from the neck. You got to grab it right here so that it doesn't bite you. If you grab it from the tail, it's just going to come around and bite you. So I think the point is that Moshe is not doing this through natural means. God is saying, I want you to notice that you're gaining this leadership. You're gaining the scepter of leadership, not through natural means. You're gaining it through divine means. And even the, the, the concept of a Nahash, yeah. If someone's picking up a poisonous snake, you don't go straight for the head because if you don't have uh, control over its body, then it could bite you. Uh, Good, but I think the worst place to grab it is the tail. No, you go farthest. Head down and you grab the snake from the head. You do not grab the tail. Yes. Seen uh, all of those nature shows? They stick yeah, the thing right on its neck. Yes. And you control the neck. Exactly. I agree. You can't grab it by the tail. Yeah, Mike. The worst place to grab it is the tail. Yes, exactly. I'm find videos online. Yes. So yeah, Mike, you'll update us next week about about uh, grabbing snakes. You'll let us know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sorry to put you on the spot like that. So so Moshe, then he he he's realizing what else? What is an ahash? If you read the Torah, you know what an ahash is, right? What is the the tanina, the nahash of of the of Bereshit? It's something that was arum, something that's cunning. So this is like a warning to Moshe. It's saying, beware of this. This power that you're getting. Because absolute power corrupts absolutely. It could turn you into a corrupt leader. So don't be like that. I think that's that's what that means when Moshe is running away from it. He's running away from that element of the Nahash. He's running away from the wiliness and the cunning of what leadership might have. And that's who Moshe is. That's why we love Moshe. is because he runs away from that aspect of the leadership. I think that's really the symbolism of what's going on here. Continue forward. What's the next thing that happens? Uh, so it returns to being a staff. And that's showing, kind of showing, like, look, you're gaining dominion over, over Pharaoh, who is symbolized by the snake, right? And by the tanin. We see in Yeshayah, in Yehezkel, Paro is compared to a, uh, a tanin in the Ye'or, in the, in the Nile River. And uh, so clearly this is a symbolism. And later on for, for the sign that Aharon's staff is going to be um, uh, consuming the staffs of the other uh, of the other uh, leaders, right? So there's something really important. We have two minutes left, so we'll, we'll end with these last two, right? And then the next, the next sign to Moshe. God says, Moshe, I want you to take your hand. I want you to stick it into your armpit, right, under your arm, and I want you to take it out, and it becomes sarat, right? What does that mean? Well, there's a, an interesting pasuk from Tehillim, where the the psalmist says to God. He says, God, how long are you going to be standing there like this? How long are you going to be standing with your hands? And it says, God, please, I want you to take action for your people. And in the ancient world, this was a sign of not doing. And this was a sign of being proactive. So I think, you know, beyond all the Midrashim that Moshe was spoke Lashon Israel, I don't think that's the Peshat. I think there is a place for those Midrashim and their lessons. But I think the Peshat Apashut here is, is uh, the, uh, the symbolism of it is this idea that if you're not, if you're not active, if you're not proactive for the nation, if you're standing in like this, Moshe, you're not going to get anything done. So this is kind of counterbalancing the first one. The first one was warning Moshe, don't do too much with your leadership. Don't be too proactive because if you are, you're going to be corrupt. And then the second one is saying, but don't do too little. Because if you do too little, you're going to become sarad. You're going to be like dead. You're not going to be a real leader. So you have to walk that tightrope of leadership. Don't be corrupt and don't be dead and don't do nothing. Right? You have to be proactive in a, in a non-corrupt manner. And finally, the most moving and the most beautiful of the three signs I want you, Moshe, to take the waters from the Nile River and I want you to spill them onto the dry land. And it's going to become blood on the dry land. 
Right, so what did we say? This is coming full circle. Just like we were saying earlier about the first plague for, for B'nai Israel, right? For, that the, the, the water of the Nile is turning to blood, so too it is here. And it's supposed to symbolize the B'nai Israel, right? What are they supposed to see? Right, finally, when Moshe does get to B'nai Israel and he does tell B'nai Israel what's going on, right, what does it say? The people believed and they were really loyal to what Moshe was saying. They really heard and they really understood that God remembered them. But beyond that, it wasn't just that God heard their cries. It was God sees their suffering. And how, how did they see that? They saw that with the third sign of Moshe. They saw that, that when Moshe took the water from the Nile and he spilled it and it became blood. He was revealing the sin, the crime of the Egyptians. And in so doing, he was showing the people, you know, I, God is saying, I know what you've been through. I know what the Egyptians, Egyptians did to your, first, to your children, to your, to your male sons, and I, I have not forgotten. So that's what God is. God is the one who is so involved, he knows your suffering. He's the one that you could cry on his shoulder. And he's also the one that's empowering you to be the leader in the time of crisis. So now, in the time of coronavirus, we, we're going through all this, this craziness, all this confusion. We should take these lessons to heart. We should realize, like we're going to discuss in future weeks, we cannot control everything. The most we could do is rely on God, and we could also be proactive. We could also be safe. We could also walk the tightrope of not doing too little, not doing too much, finding that sweet spot about how much can I control, how much can I not control. And if we're in that spot, we're going to really have a place of equanimity and peace and Bezat Hashem, we should all be like that. So I want to open the floor to any questions. If you have to go, feel free to go. If anybody has any questions, please let me know. Thank you very much.